Um, I love this analogy, so I just kind of wanted to review some things that we talked about last week and share it with you again uh, this week. The first thing I want to emphasize in, in this class, and I want to, I'm going to bring this up uh, a couple of times just in this, is how intimidating it is uh, to teach a class on marriage or to talk about marriage um, in, in front of you. And I, yeah, I haven't seen Melinda yet uh, today, but she was here last week. Oh, there she is, hiding in the back. But... Uh, um, you know, one thing that's really crazy to me is like if I do if I do a class and I talk about parenting, I don't have any kids, okay. And, and if I do a class and I talk about marriage, um, I I would never want to put myself forward as somebody who's experienced or hey look at me do things the way I do it. That, that's not at all the way um, I see it at all, uh, because really. Um, I don't th- want anybody, and I think it's actually in our weaknesses that it's maybe better to teach. Because instead of having someone look to me as a parent or as a husband, I think the idea is to look at the Word of God and to st- stand before God and allow Him to speak to us. Uh, you know, I-, I was doing a class one time and somebody said, but you don't have any experience. You know, I did youth ministry for a long time. Um, and some- sometimes me, man, you don't even have kids, you know, what, what is, and I said, I don't say anything by authority, um, you have to look at it and say, is this truth or is it not truth, it has nothing to do with authority, and that has to do with everything we say in the church, right, there's nothing I can say that is by authority, because I don't have authority, um, oh, here we go, uh, because, I, because I don't have authority, um, it's just by the word of God and the truth that's there, um, prayer shawl is a, a traditional prayer shawl um, from, I'm actually just going to go to the handheld, I think. All right. Um, but brought this back, and this is Steve's, and I don't want to uh, even drink my coffee with this on because this is a really nice one. Um but I want to talk to you a little bit about, um, and I'm just going to bring this up. We talked about it last week. As part of Jewish tradition, this represents the Torah. This represents the law of God. And and um, on the corners of it would be what are called the tzitzit. And, and they're, it's very deliberate. It's very specific, the way this is tied. Um, that there are five knots, and it would represent Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And this would represent the law. And as a whole, the head covering would represent the law. And so when you would go to God in prayer, um, traditionally Jewish men would cover their heads with this, this shawl, and it would be as representing I'm coming before God with the law, kind of between me and God, that I pray to God through his law, through his word, and I always pray with my head covered. And that's why it's crazy when Paul... When he wrote about men praying, he said, I want men everywhere to pray with your head uncovered. What he said, we always focus on the woman, women in, the, in these verses, but the, what crazy controversial thing he said had to do with the men. Because men were to always pray with their head covered. And Paul stands up and he says, I want men to pray everywhere with their head uncovered. The law is not between you and God kind of a thing. It's crazy what he was saying. But still today in Jewish ceremonies and wedding ceremonies, the man will take his prayer shawl and wrap it around his wife. 
and bring her in. And what it's saying is, I'm bringing you into my sacred relationship with God. That you are a part of the most intimate world that I have with my God. And I'm coming and I'm going to be a part of your world uh, with God. Um, And so I want to go ahead and open together into Ephesians 5. And we're going to kind of pick up where we left off there in Ephesians 5. And a beautiful truth came out last week that I think needs to be emphasized and re-emphasized in Ephesians 5 because these verses have been largely misunderstood and largely misrepresented. Um, this, is, this is Ephesians 5 where we left off last week. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, this is verse 21. This is the key verse of the chapter David mentioned last week. Wait a second. We're not just talking about husbands and wives. We're talking about wives with husbands. We're not just talking about fathers with children. We're talking about children with fathers. We're not just talking about masters with slaves. We're talking about slaves with masters. It's all of these relationships. He's saying this, submit to one another. And where that got crazy is, David, I went home last week and I said, wait a second. What about the children and fathers? Uh, Of course, children are supposed to submit to their fathers. But wait a second. Are we going to reverse that one? Parents, submit to your children. I would actually suggest to you that in that context, yes, in a sense, that is what it's saying. When it says, fathers, don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You serve them at their feet and you raise them up. And our relationships, all relationships, have to do with submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And that's why it's so important when we look at these verses, we don't say, wives, submit to your husbands. That's what the Bible says, right? It says this, submit to one another. And the most unhealthy relationship is when somebody assumes a role as, I am the one that everyone is going to submit to. It's not going to work in your job. It's not going to work in your marriage. It's not going to work in your family. It's about submitting to one another and serving one another. Does God serve us? Does he submit to us? That's weird language. He humbled himself and became a what? A servant. He washed feet. This is the God of Scripture, right? And he does this as a representative of what our marriage is in our lives. So I'm doing some just some review from last week real quick. Um, I need to get rid of this. That's Okay, thanks. I'll switch off. All right, there we go. I'm going to read a, just a couple of poems that I traditionally have read. Um, and marriage ceremonies. I'm going to talk to you about those poems and, and kind of what they mean to me in just a second. But I want to keep going in Ephesians 5 before I read these into the verses that we're going to look at uh, here today. Picking up at verse, um, I'm just going to go down to verse 30. It says this, We are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. 
However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. You know, it's crazy here, and this is this is going to kind of bring me into where I want to go today, is, is Paul is so excited about marriage and what marriage means, and he's talking about it, and he says, this is crazy. This is a profound mystery. He does this twice in his letters. He does it also in, in the book of Hebrews, where he goes off and he gets excited about this deep parallel, and he says, man, you're not ready for this. Um, you're only ready for milk right now, but I want to give you some of this meat. He gets excited about how marriage represents Christ in his church and the deep, profound connection that the two seem to have um, uh, you know, between the two. I'm going to read a couple of poems to you and then come back to what he just said. This is Wild Awake by Hilary uh, Smith. People are like cities. We all have alleys and gardens and secret rooftops and places where daisies sprout between the sidewalk cracks. But most of the time, all all we let each other see is a postcard glimpse of a skyline or a polished square. Love lets you find those hidden places in another person, even the ones they didn't know were there, even the ones they wouldn't have thought to call beautiful themselves. Um, the reason I love that poem is because, isn't it true in marriage, do you remember dating, like when you first met, and the impression that you're trying to make on who you are and the way you act and the way maybe you open doors or the things that you do things just the right way. But when marriage comes and you come home, you find out so much about each other. And they're not always great things. You find out all of the faults. You find out all of the difficulties. You find out all of the... Oh, man, is that what happened? Is that what I married into? Is this the relation I got? And so many people feel like, man, I'm disillusioned. That's not the person I thought I was going to bring home. I want to ask you a question just just before kind of get into this, just to think about. Imagine you are pregnant. You're having a baby. We had a lot of babies born here. You have a vision for what this baby is going to look like. And I mean, it is going to be this perfect vision of a postcard baby and all of a sudden your baby comes and there's there are faults. And you would say, ooh, I don't like that word, faults, right? There's, there's things that you have that are like you know, imperfections. Oh, man, there's a cleft palate. Oh, there's something else wrong. Now, what do you say? Do you sit there and say, not what I was looking for? Did, did you do that? Not what I was looking for. Not the baby that... I, Or does it make you fall more in love with this child and say, I am going to love you no matter what? And your child comes home. Children teach us a lot about what love looks like. You love someone even especially in their faults. You know what I'm saying? especially in their faults, especially in their shortcomings. They come and you have all these difficulties and you argue in all these times and there's times you don't like each other. I know But there's love and devotion between a mother and a child, or they're supposed to be. There's love and devotion here. And we get that in a parent-child relationship. And we get that in a father. But all of a sudden, when marriages come together and we start talking about love, we talk like this. I'm in love with you. I'm no longer in love with you. I liked you. No longer feeling it. All of these things, it seems to be so conditional. You know what I'm saying when it comes to marriages? It's different. And there's this thing in this in, that I'm, I've just been thinking about this and saying, God has got to teach us something about what commitment and love and devotion look like. Um, 
in a marriage uh, situation. When I started dating Melinda, um, man, we were separated for two years. And yeah, you know our story. We broke up quite a bit during that time. Um, but we wrote letters back and forth. And we have each other's letters. We still have these boxes full of cheesy letters. And, I mean, they're sacred to us, but, man, it's not stuff like, I want to share illustrations. I couldn't find a single paragraph that I was willing to share with anybody. Okay? It was just, I was looking through it. I was going, no, this is rough, man. And and, and just looking at it. But here's the thing. Um, I lost that box one time we were moving. It was over a decade ago. I lost our letters. Or at least, was it all the ones you had written me or all the ones I had written you? Okay, the ones, it's the smaller box. And, and, uh, and, and, uh, but I had lost all of those letters. And I was terrified to even tell her. You know, I was like, I, I lost them. I mean, they're gone. Did you know that those were lost almost 10 years and they resurfaced after we moved to Colorado? And I was, I, I was so excited that that box turned up and I was like, I don't know how it made two moves without me recognizing it, but there it is. And I got so excited and I was going back through it, but I was thinking about, oh man, you're just, every time she would write a letter, it took two weeks for it to come to Ecuador from Scotland. Two weeks. And it would take two weeks for me to reply. Okay. So it's a month to correspond one time back then. We don't have internet, you know, and I get this letter. And man, you, you hold it, you read it, you think over it, you are in love, man, and you just keep reading this and you're like, man, I'm so excited. And the breakups were super awkward because it's Valentine's Day and I don't realize that I write a letter and I'm actually breaking up with her on Valentine's Day, but I don't know it because I sent it two weeks earlier and I wasn't thinking that. So I broke up with her on Valentine's Day and she sends me this massive, beautiful care package. I'm in love with you that I receive on Valentine's Day. And our church secretary said, I hate you. I, she, she did, at Luce Mila. But I thought about that, and I thought about, man, this love relationship we had, but what happens when we come home? And Melinda and I come home together, and our first apartment in Lubbock, Texas, was a roach-infested apartment. Our rent was about 300 350 something like that a month, which is great. Um, but it was roach-infested. And I won't get into the details of that because it's grosser than you think. Um, but they were everywhere. And I remember one day I went through, and in typical Texas redneck fashion, I sealed all the cracks in our apartment with duct tape. And I did. I went around with duct tape, and I was like, not doing this, man. This is nasty. The, I don't care what this looks like. You're getting out of here. And I remember we were doing this, and all of a sudden... I was fixing a light, and a bunch fell out on my head and down my shirt. And I punched a hole in the wall, and roaches came out the hole, okay? I mean, and I lost it, and I'm on my temper. And I used to have this crazy temper, okay? Like, the one of those tempers that you never lose your temper unless you do. And and then it's like, I run, I, I'm, I'm losing it now. And I remember how embarrassed I was that she saw that side of me. I remember how humiliated I was that when I went to bed that night that I'm supposed to be that godly man, that man that she fell in love with, that man she wrote those letters to, and now she's come home with me. Now she's come home and she finds out who the real Jeff is. What are my weaknesses? What are my la- Tell me about my laziness, my anger, my temper. 
And all of a sudden you start seeing the other side of that person. Man, you stink sometimes. Man, work on your hygiene a little bit occasionally. There are these things that happen, you know, and all of a sudden a marriage. And you're like, will she still love me when she finds out that other side? You know what I'm saying? And the beautiful thing that happens is you improve. You you help each other. You, you help each other grow. Um, the second poem I wanted to share with you. And so that, that, that was the first poem. Just talking about seeing each other's weaknesses and loving each other and considering each other beautiful even in each other's weaknesses, right? The next one is um, from Captain Corelli's Mandolin by, uh, well, I'm not going to try to pronounce that name, Louis de Bernay. Okay. Love is madness temporarily. It erupts like a volcano and then subsides. And when it subsides, you have to make a decision. You have to work out whether your roots have so entwined together that it's inconceivable that you should ever part. Because this is what love is. Love is not always breathlessness. It's not always excitement. It's not always the promulgation of promises of eternal passion. That is just being in love, which any fool can do. Love itself is what is left over when being in love is burned away. And this is both an art and a fortunate accident. Those that truly love have roots that grow towards each other underground And when pretty blossoms have fallen from their branches, they find that they are one tree and not two. There are difficulties I have with that poem. There's some things I don't like that he said there. Um, But at the same time, when I looked at it, I was like, man, this is so much of what Paul is saying and what Christ is saying in Scripture about what marriage looks like as the two really become one uh, together. Um, Denver Broncos are starting a new season here. Curious right now, how many of y'all are football fans? Do you care about the Denver Broncos? Raise your hand if you care. Okay, so a good number, a healthy number of you. A lot of you don't. I do love to follow football and stuff, but can you imagine if the the reports right now about the Denver Broncos uh, were, man, this team gets along. They don't fight. They do really well together. They love each other. They are a family. Is it still a healthy football team if they have all that stuff? What else do they need? They need some skill. I mean, we don't necessarily... We want them to get along, right? But that's not what makes the football team, right? What makes the football team? Are you winning games? Are you moving the ball forward? You know, are, are there some things that you're doing? Is there a direction you're going? I could sit here and talk about Melinda and I's marriage. The truth is, we don't fight. We haven't fought in 20 years. And it's sometimes it sounds like we're, we're bragging about that. And I'm not. It's one of those things is, Francis Chan said this, and he's so dead on. And don't get me wrong, I think Melinda and I have a healthy marriage. But that's not what makes a marriage healthy. You can have a great relationship And have a worthless marriage. That's what Francis Chan said. I loved it that he said that. He said, you can have an amazing relationship and a worthless marriage. And I thought that was amazing. And I think I thought it was strong language, maybe over the top language. But what he was saying is this. My life has a purpose. I have direction. And our marriage has a purpose. It has a direction. And it's more than just getting along. The Denver Broncos were not there, are not there to just get along as a team. They have a purpose. They have a mission. They have something they're supposed to be doing together going forward. 
And I think one of the most, dif- the greatest difficulties in our lives, in our friendships, in our relationships, you know what the greatest turnoff for most women and most men is? Don't obsess over me. Okay? Don't obsess over me. Don't, don't sit here and stare me down all the time and say, man, I'm a love. If I am your life, I'm creeped out by anybody. I don't want to be somebody's life. And, and the same is true on both sides. What makes a marriage healthy is we grow up with this idea of happily ever after. And this guy is looking for this girl, right? And this girl is looking for this guy. And this is the purpose in life is to find the right person, right? And then you find each other. And then what happens? Happily ever after. The problem is neither one of you have a purpose anymore. You're left you're stuck. And I was my youth minister way back in the day that gave me that analogy. He said, but what if my life is ascending to God, coming closer to my God, and this person comes alongside, my life keeps going forward with a purpose. And I'm going to glorify you with this person, but I'm moving forward with purpose, with direction. We're going somewhere. And I really do think that that's a whole lot of what... Um, makes a marriage healthy is when there's direction and when there's purpose and especially when there's a shared purpose and you're doing something, uh, you know, uh, together. Um, I'm going to go to Ecclesiastes chapter 4 real quick. Um, and these are verses a lot of times that we might read um, in a marriage, in a wedding ceremony. And yesterday uh, I was thinking about thoughts I'd share in class this morning, but we were, it was with Jill and Dan. And Jill and Dan were, were married yesterday. And I got to stand there and just watch this answer to prayer in each other's lives come together into the love that was in that room. Uh, I don't know how many of you know Dan or have you gotten to know him. But when I first sat down with them and got to know him as a man, I was overwhelmed. I, was, I, I, I love him. And I loved him from the, the first day. Because I saw his devotion to his God. And he said something along the lines of, he says, God is not part of my life. God is my life. This is what I celebrate in. And I love to see how God had brought them together. And so it was so beautiful to uh, stand together with them. I just want to read you Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down... His friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they'll keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? The one may be overpowered. Two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands isn't quickly broken. The reason I wanted to share this with you is um, I kind of want to segue into Malachi chapter 2 and something God says there. But he, he says this, he uses this, this Hebrew word um, for your partner. And it's, it's this word, not that it matters, but it's, it's kabar. And it's a word that was used when two nations joined and became one nation. They came together. It was used that way in scripture. It was used of, of alliances like David and Jonathan. It's where you become a unit and you're working together. But it was often a military term or something where I'm coming together as a team. And this is the word he uses in Ecclesiastes, but it's also the word he uses in Malachi. And I just want to read this to you and, and, I'll have a little bit of time for discussion, but this is Malachi chapter 2, 
beginning in verse 13. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you've broken faith with her. Though she's your partner, and he uses that same word, she is your other half. She is your unit. She's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are his. And I love that because it actually acts as a commentary. When we read about the two shall be one, Malachi takes it a step further and he says, in flesh and in spirit. They are his. So you become one. And we've used this language all of our life. We became one in Christ. It says this, we became one in flesh and spirit. And it says we are his. Um, and why one? This is what the Bible is saying here. This is Malachi. Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and don't break faith with the wife of your youth. And that's the context in which God says this. I hate divorce. I hate it. But it says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as just the same way he would a garment says the Lord Almighty. It's crazy what he says there in Malachi, talking about all of this and saying, this is what marriage is supposed to look like. This is what you are in me. Um, man, I've, I've had some bizarre experiences, guys. Some super bizarre experiences in marriage counseling and people that have come to me wanting to be married. Um, just two years ago, I had a couple call me from Cheyenne. And they wanted to go through marriage counseling and they wanted to be married. And I'm dead serious. This is what happened. Day one, I said, man, what made you guys decide you want to get married? And they said, the rent will be cheaper. And I said, man, that's good news. You guys love each other? Honestly, he said, not sure yet. I was like, man, I would love to keep meeting with you guys. And we're going to keep meeting. But wow. Um, we don't get married to save money on rent, okay? We get married out of love and devotion and commitment, man. And, and there's some crazy things I've seen where I'm like, do you understand what's ahead? And that's why it's so important. It's important that I say this. Um, and I'm not getting into anything political. I hope you know I'm not too political and talking about what marriage is and what marriage isn't. But look, I want to tell you this. Marriage is a religious term. It's not a worldly term that we adopted in religion, Marriage, it comes from God. That's what it is. Okay, and so when we talk about marriage and two people are getting united in marriage and it's not in God. In other words, you have somebody that is not in Christ. They have no desire for Christ. Um, Some of the marriages in this very room, I know that you came to Christ after you were married and I get that. But I want to tell you this. Marriage outside of Christ is difficult. It's difficult to try to emulate what marriage is even intended to be. Because the truth is, I'm going a direction in my life. As a Christian, my life is for God, walking in Him, and this life is short, and I'm going to honor Him and glory Him until the day, glorify Him until the day I die. 
And if I'm with somebody in a union where we're one and we're not going the same direction, that is difficult. Um, super difficult. I'm closer to Christ today because of Melinda. I am closer to Christ because of her. And I pray that she's closer to her God because of me. But I, I look at these verses and I'm thinking, how do you go forward? How does this work? And what does this look like if I'm not in God? Now, I'm going to say some things in this class. And keep in mind, I started this class by warning you, I'm not an expert in marriage. I'm not coming up here to say anything but say, man, I'm going to speak what's on my heart. And there's people that are older and wiser in this room and younger and wiser in this room than I am. And I want to hear from you as well. But it's something that's super important that we talk about because I do know that marriage today is not represented on TV. It's not represented in our experience or in literature the way I think God intended it uh, to be experienced. I want to open up for some comments here in a second, but um, I want to share with you something that kind of happened to me. It's a beautiful story uh, about my anger and, and things that Melinda did to help me. We were in Scotland on a vacation one time. And um, I don't know if you've ever driven, uh, you know, overseas or in a place where you drive on the other side of the road. And I was so excited about doing that, you know, and, and what took me off guard is how narrow the roads were. Not that you're driving on the other side of the road, but it's so narrow. And there would be 18 wheelers coming the other direction. And you're thinking, I've got six inches right here between me and the other, this other lane. And I was terrified, but I got the hang of it and I was doing well. And I was driving, I'm doing okay. And Melinda's a better driver than I am, in general. But she asked, after the, at the end of the week, she said, man, is it all right if I drive? And I was like, yeah. So she drove. And I'm not telling on her, but I have to tell on her. So she drove, and I had just gotten a hot coffee from McDonald's. Now, I know that's nasty, but I still got a hot coffee from McDonald's. It's sitting there in my lap. I'm drinking this coffee. We're going down, I don't know, in my mind, I think we're going 70 miles an hour. An 18-wheeler is coming, and she starts to nudge over off the road. And I see a sharp rock or maybe a curb or something that's sticking out over here. And I said, there's a, there's a curb there. And uh, she kept driving. I said, there's a curb there. And then I started to say, curb, curb. We nailed it. I mean, we hit it hard. Buried the car up onto the side of this thing. Coffee goes all over me, scalding coffee all over me. And I went, it's all right, honey. And I did. I recovered. And I couldn't believe I recovered. I recovered. And it ended up being because little things like that, man, that happens when you're driving. But the greater test was what I was going through. That moment where you're put to the test, you're about to lose it. And that ended up being the best part of our, one of the best part of our vacation, the weird things that happened after that, how we got the car towed and went to some weird town and I couldn't understand the language. Um, but we had a blast together. And the reason that's a, a place in my life that I have always loved is I was like, wow, um, God has used this woman and with me and I'm growing in myself, I'm growing in patience, I'm growing in these areas. And what I'm saying is, I, I use a good example. I could use a thousand bad examples of things that I've done in marriage. Um, but I use that as an example because I do think this. If we aren't attempting to glorify God as a husband, if I'm not attempting to glorify God and who I am, 
I don't know if I could have survived some of the pitfalls in marriage. I don't know if I could have survived some of them um, because I was working on personal growth rather than growing with her. Um, um, or I say growing with her, rather than just looking at her and saying, you're letting me down, you're letting me down, you're letting me down. I'm not feeling this anymore. Instead, because I'm trying to glorify God, I'm seeing more and more beauty in her. And I'm growing myself. Uh, and so ultimately what I'm saying in the point of this class is, and Steve in the next couple of weeks is going to get more in some of the things that are going to be practical I'm trying to do just a big overall view of vision and what are we doing in marriage? What is the big goal? What is the big picture? And what God do I stand before? Um, and that's super important to me because I do think people lose that. Um, been here and there, but any comments, any thoughts, anything you could do to kind of help me out there, advice that you would offer? Yeah. Yeah, that's Francis Chan, not me. <laughs> right. Yeah. I love something. I love something Chan said in that same message. He was—he's so funny, but he was talking about somebody in the military going to war, and they said, "Imagine somebody that signed up in the army, and some of you guys have served, and you've seen all kinds of crazy stuff. And you go in in the army, and he runs, and he's in the—he's in the trenches, and he starts running back, and he says, they 'They 'They're shooting at us.'" I don't believe this. And he starts running. This is crazy. You're like, what did you expect was going to happen, man? You're in the army. You're at war. And I love the analogy, man, because I was thinking when problems come up in marriage, I'm like, it's marriage. And I'm not trying to put a dark, but of course you're going to have problems. In this world, Christ, all he promised us was problem. He said, in this world, you're going to have troubles. And then our Christian walk, we turn back and say, God, I'm mad at you. I don't understand why this stuff is happening. And all God was saying is, that's exactly what I told you was going to happen. This world is a war. Marriage sometimes, man, you are going to have pitfalls. You're going to have these things where, man, it's like I said last week, I can't find two college roommates that can room together for a few years and not become worst enemies. For a few years. Or even a semester. And then all of a sudden, you're supposed to devote yourself to somebody for the rest of your life? Listen, I was an only child. I didn't even have to deal with a brother or sister. To come together with somebody and say, for the rest of our lives together as a unit, of course you're going to have difficulties. Of course you are. And you have to be prepared for those and glorify God in them, right? That's the big thing, yeah. Right. 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 
Yeah. Right. You miss a whole element of marriage for sure. Right. What it's supposed to be when you're not I, l- I love the point. I'm going to kind of reiterate what was said. Um, okay, great, Jeff. You talked about marriages. It's good. You married to somebody in Christ. You're both strong Christians. That's not what most, most marriages look like. Okay, so let's talk about the way it is. There's times where I'm strong, my spouse is weak. There's times where she's strong, I'm weak. Times where you're in Christ and your spouse not in Christ. How does this look? Last week we talked about that and said, here's the crazy thing. In the Bible, almost every example of marriage is a bad one. Almost every single one. The healthiest marriages we could look at last week had to do with people pretending that they're your sister so other people could be with you. Okay, those were the stronger marriages in Scripture. We really don't have a lot of examples of script in Scripture of, wow, what a good marriage. And Daniel texted me after class last week, and he said, and then there's God and his people Israel, which is the whole story of a bad marriage. You know, the whole Bible is the story of one of those marriages. God and his, his people, what do you do in this relationship where it is that way? And that the truth is, whether your marriage is healthy in Christ, out of Christ, one thing that is healthy to know is the only thing that you can ever control is yourself. You can't ever control the other person. And so only trying to control what is in your control and saying, I'm going to glorify God as much as I can. But those are difficult situations. But that is the story of God in this church. There's another verse that's been wildly taken out of context. In Paul's letter to Corinth, he says, I wish that every man was as I was. And we've thought that that verse was to say, hey, it's better to be single than it is to be married. It's more godly to be single than it is to be married. And probably you heard that teaching in your life. But that's not what he's saying at all in Corinth. Corinth. He says this, because of the present crisis, I'm saying this. In other words, we're at war right now. People are dying. This is rough. Right now, it is better if you're single than if you're married. You have things going on. He is not saying, God's whole design for marriage, it's okay, but it's better and you're more godly if you're single. That is not at all what Paul is teaching. In fact, marriage is a godly thing. It is a beautiful thing. And being able to experience God through it is is uh, sacred, man. It's, it's amazing. All right. One more. Last comment or any other thoughts? Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, it's so crazy that you said that because that was the exact thought I had when I was coming in the door this morning. I got so excited because I was just praying. And I remember thinking, God, if you're not in my work, then why do it? And then I got, thought the opposite thought. And it's exactly what you said. But God, if you are in my work, this is crazy <laughs> you know, because I can't go wrong. It doesn't matter what I do. You're amazing. And I was thinking the, that is so true in our marriages and all of that stuff, man, if God's in it. And what I want you to do, just get out of this class. I know we've been kind of here and there in this class, but what I would love for you to get out of this and for us to kind of pray together and relationships that you're going through, your own marriage, marriages that you're working with, your children, your parents, all of this. 
I think one of the big things that I would love to step back and just admire God in is this. If we are walking in him, if we are truly walking in him, and that's, that's everything, that does not mean that a marriage is going to work out. Okay, That does not mean things are going to go right. But it does arm you with the tools you need to see each other through the lens, uh, lens that's healthy. And to put each other, put yourself at one another's feet. Um, it's an analogy I don't like to share, but it's important that I do. Um, just to close out, that kind of tie, ties in with that. Um, again, last thing I want to do is even talk about my own marriage that much because I don't think of myself as, hey, look at me. It's not that way. Um, but one of the most frustrating things I've had with Melinda, and really this is all I've got because she's, she's amazing. She is. But I used to get super frustrated that she would order things and leave cardboard boxes out. Okay? It is, she's going to kill me for talking about it. Leave cardboard boxes out. And I'm like, I would go nuts. And I would be like, how hard is it to put the box away? And there's boxes everywhere. And you go fold the box and you're like, why are there boxes everywhere? Now, I've got faults that are way beyond this. Okay, I got crazy ones. Okay? But, but for some reason, the thing that kept getting to me was cardboard boxes. And I'm like, if I see one more cardboard box in the middle of my dining room table, in the middle of these places, I'm going to lose my mind. And at the same time, I'm doing marriage counseling with people, okay? And I'm, I'm counseling with people, and I hear about these things, and I was like, I am messed up over cardboard boxes, okay? And finally, I was counseling a guy one time, and it was like I was talking to him, and all of a sudden, it was just like I turned around and started talking to myself, and I was like, Jeff, it is a cardboard box. Man up and put it away yourself, How about you man up and wash some dishes? How about you man up and do some of these things? And I say that to say this. Most of the problems that happen in marriage are because, I really do believe this, I start putting things on her that God would want me to put on me. I am her servant in this life. That language might bother you, but that is what Ephesians 5 says. I am her servant in this life, and she is mine. And we serve one another, and it's not about... In this world, it's not about me going through this world and saying, what's 50-50? What's fair? I'm doing this. What are you doing? It's not about his needs, her needs. It's about me saying, God, I will glorify you through the way I serve this woman. And if that means me growing up and folding a cardboard box, then that's what I'm going to do. Okay? And let me tell you, I have grown in so much joy personally. Not that I have become a selfless person. She would laugh at that idea. But the idea that the more I have gone that direction, the happier I have been as a person uh, with other people. And so I do think that that's the heart of this message. That's not a difficult, I mean, that's not an easy message for me to talk to you guys about. Um, but I really do think that's at the heart of everything we're talking about um, glorifying God and ourselves becoming much, much less. It's going to help us in our jobs. It's going to help us in all relationships, especially in church, when we get this mentality that I am the servant of man. I am the servant of my wife. I'm the servant of my parents. I am the servant of my children. I will lift these people up around me and start forgetting about me. Um, I pray that you won't listen to Jeff because Jeff is not the experienced person. But if there's a word from God in that that you needed to hear, I pray that you'd hold on to that.
uh, God, I, I, I do want to come before you and through our weaknesses and through, God, I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to grow in this. I want to magnify you in my marriage. Uh, even when things seem to be going well, I don't want to get to a point where I'm, I'm not striving to be an imitation of who you are. I pray, God, for the marriages in your body today, in your church. Um, I pray, Father, that you would cause us to fall wildly in love with you. And that that would be the backbone of of who we are um, as our couples and as married people in this world. Um, And I do, I want to pray, Father, for um, the heart of anyone that is in love with their spouse and out of love with you. Uh, that you would convict them that it can be so much better, that marriage was designed to be in you and of you, uh, because you are love and you teach us what love is and what love looks like. Um, I love you, Father, for giving us one another, um, for showing us what love is and, and for even using examples in this world to continue to speak to us. Uh, it's in the name of Christ we come before you. Amen. Thank you.